I'm going to do something kind of cheesy right now and start this week's episode by sharing some definitions from the Oxford English Dictionary. Bear with me though, because I promise it's relevant. Oxford defines the word classic in a few ways. As an adjective, it can mean judged over a period of time to be of the highest quality and outstanding of its kind. As a noun, it's a work of art of recognized and established value. That might all be true, but it doesn't mean that the conversation about so-called classics is uncomplicated. In fact, with each passing year, I tend to think that the matter of classics becomes that much more complex. Episode 259 puts these complexities on full display as my guest and I discuss The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett. The Secret Garden was published in 1911, making it one of the older books we've covered here on SSR. In The Secret Garden, a young girl named Mary wakes up one day to discover that her entire family has died from cholera. She moves from her home in India to a manor in England, where her reclusive uncle has outsourced her care to the household staff. Mary admits to being a pretty unpleasant child, and she struggles to adapt to her new surroundings, until she stumbles on a secret garden on the manor's grounds and discovers that she has a cousin, Colin, hidden in another part of the building. Mary encourages Colin to overcome his fears of going outside and pushes him to see that he's much healthier than the adults around him would like him to believe. The Secret Garden gives us so much to discuss. Colonialism, depictions of disability, racism, toxic masculinity, unlikable kid protagonists, and even Munchausens. My guest and I also consider Burnett's characters in terms of the manifesting, mind over matter, culty conversations we have about health in 2023. Meet my guest. Genevieve Wheeler is an American writer and communications director. Her bylines have appeared in publications like Vice, Vogue Business, Teen Vogue, Elite Daily, Business Insider, and Pop Sugar, with her work and words cited in the New York Times, Fox, the BBC World Service, Cheddar News, Jezebel, and beyond. She currently lives in London and holds an MA in Marketing and Communications from the University of Westminster and a BS in Advertising from Boston University. Her debut novel, Adelaide, is available now from St. Martin's Press and was one of my favorite reads of the year so far. You can follow Genevieve on Instagram at gwheeler. Don't forget that you can follow SSR on Instagram at SSRpod, as well as on Twitter at SSRpod and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. I love hearing from listeners on social media, so please don't hesitate to reach out or tag the show with your thoughts about today's episode. If you already follow me on Instagram, you know that I went on quite the rant last week about the recent influx of even more influencer-driven book clubs that, if you ask me, are missing an important opportunity to amplify lesser-known authors and to give their members a fun, meaningful, connective experience. I will resist the urge to get back on my soapbox about that here, but I will let you know that I have a great alternative for you, which is the SWR Book Club. SWR stands for Shit We Read, and membership in it is one of many perks you can access when you become an SSR supporter on Patreon. I invest a lot of time and love into running SWR, and I am so proud of what we have built together. This week, we kick off our September discussion of Nora Goes Off Script, which was selected based on a group vote that went all the way to a tiebreaker. Patreon members also get an invite to our Discord channel, newsletters, bonus episodes, exclusive Q&As with podcast guests, and more. It means a lot to me to put these extras together as a thank you for the people who show their support for this independent podcast. Join the fun for as little as $1 per month by going to www.patreon.com slash SSR podcast 
or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Find your next great audiobook at Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O F-M and use code SSRPodcast when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is the perfect place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. Plus, the audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. We all use Amazon for plenty of things, but I personally love looking for opportunities to spend my money elsewhere when I can. Enter Libro.fm. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Genevieve. Welcome to SSR. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's a classics day today. We don't get to do one of these real classics that often on the podcast, so it's always a treat. It's always a little bit weird because it's a reminder of like just how much has changed and also how some things have stayed the same about what we look for in good books, both for adults and for kids. Today, we are looking at The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett. I never feel like I'm saying her name correctly. Hodgson is like a weird one for me to say. I'm going to try. It's tricky. It's tricky. The book was published in 1911 after many of her other well-known novels were published. But let's get started by hearing from you, Genevieve. Why did you want to choose The Secret Garden to come back to for this week's episode? It's funny. I remember reading The Secret Garden as a kid, probably when I was like eight or so. It was one of my mom's favorite books, and she had this very well-worn paperback copy that I read. And in retrospect, I haven't read it since then, so it's been over two decades. But in retrospect, I have no idea how I understood it. I remember (laughs) reading it and loving it, and then reading it now, I'm like, there's so much dialogue that just must have gone completely over my head. Yeah. But I remembered that moment. I remembered, you know, picking up the book and and reading it and enjoying it as a child, so I thought it would be a fun one to revisit with you. Yeah, I don't know that I ever actually read the whole thing. I feel like I maybe had like a sort of simplified version of it that was written for kids that maybe I paged through at some point. I was a big fan of the 1993 movie. Did you ever see that one when you were a kid? I never saw the movie. I saw a stage show in London Okay. Um, around the time that I read it. Okay. So I think that might have helped me like piece some of it together because I think I saw the show before reading it. So I kind of knew the story, but I've never seen the film, at least not that I remember. Yeah, I loved that 1993 movie. And it was one of those sort of like core memories that I had to unlock a little bit, like when we decided that we were going to read this. And the same thing happened with the adaptation of A Little Princess. Those were both movies that I watched again and again and again on VHS when I was little. And 
I don't know if you can relate to this with any movies or TV shows from your own childhood, but like, I feel like I'd had these sort of snippets of those movies in my brain for years, Yeah. but I couldn't quite remember what they were. And then once I started digging into research for that episode, and then again for this one, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, these movies that I loved so much. So I actually just a few minutes ago went onto YouTube and looked at the trailer for The Secret Garden. Again, the 1993 adaptation because there have been many. Yeah. And Maggie Smith's in it. I don't think there are any other like well-known actors, but it all started to come back. I love that. I feel like it would be the same if I watched, I was a big fan of Milo and Otis as a mm, child, ugh. but I haven't watched it as an adult. And I feel like if I did, I would be like, oh my goodness, it's all, it's all flooding back now. That's one that I used to rent at Blockbuster a lot. Like yeah. that was a sick day rental frequently in my house. So yeah, I was really happy to come back to the Secret Garden like you. And, and I don't think I read the whole book as a kid, as I mentioned, but I was reading it and I was like, this feels like it would have gone over my head. So I think if I had attempted to read the whole version when I was little, I would have been like, this isn't anything like the movie. But I have a lot of thoughts, and I'm sure you do too, before I get to them, just a brief little history lesson. So this book, at least according to its author, has the distinction of being the first ever children's book that had its origins being serialized in a magazine. So prior to its publication in 1911 in both America and England, it came out in a series of short stories in a magazine here in the U.S., and something that the author liked to talk about with that a lot was this magazine was actually one that was targeted toward adults. And so she felt like, and she probably wouldn't have used these words at that time, but like the marketing of it was kind of cool and that she had written it with kids in mind, but the initial readership was primarily adults. And then when it was published, it came out sort of with the Frances Hodgson Burnett name on it. And of course, she already had quite a reputation as a successful children's author. So I thought that was sort of interesting just in like the way it started and how she conceived of the audience. Yeah, that's really interesting. And now that, now that you're saying that and then thinking about it, I feel like the book does almost feel like it takes place in different acts mm. in a way. I mean, every book does, but the way that the narration starts in certain chapters is very distinct than in others yeah. or very very different than in others. And so I, I wonder if that, if she wrote it with that in mind, like I want this to be a series of short stories or not. That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that short story fact when I started reading it. And now that you mentioned it, I feel like if I went back and kind of tried to guess where those breaks happened, it might be sort of obvious because yeah, I noticed at the beginning of the chapters, some of them were felt like really strong, if that makes sense. Like they felt mm -hmm. less like the start of a chapter. And like you said, more like the beginning of something completely new. So I wonder if that was part of it. There are some sort of like big picture issues that I want to make sure we get out of the way first, because this book is certainly not without its issues and without its challenges. It is beloved. It is included on all kinds of lists of like best children's literature ever. You can find those lists online, no problem. But there are some deep rooted problems here. This was a book, again, that was written in 1911. And I want to make sure we address some of those sort of undertones before we get into the rest of the story. This book is written with this frame of colonialism. The story begins in India when India is a British colony. And it's very clear in those early chapters. And even as the book progresses, that the Indian characters are treated extremely poorly by the British characters. The main character, Mary, is from a wealthy family. And she references really like the staff of people that were in the employ of her family. And it's clear that 
there is just deep-seated racism between the two groups of people. And I read some like mixed kind of thoughts about colonialism specifically online. Some, of course, were very quick to just talk about how colonialism is terrible always, and yes. But then there were some that argue that this book actually does a good job of showing that colonialism has a harmful effect on everyone involved, even for the people who are like supposedly benefiting from it. Yeah, And I guess I do see that because Mary has like, obviously, she's extremely dependent. She has all of these issues when she shows up to London. And I think we as adults can see that that might be attributed to the fact that she has been catered to by these other folks. But I'm not sure that that is like explicit to kid readers in this book. So I'm not sure I like totally buy that. Yeah, I'm with you. And I mean, it's interesting because I knew the origins of the story and I knew that it obviously started in India. And I hadn't remembered just how deep-seated and offensive some of the comments were. I, again, I must have just completely gone over my head, but I think at eight years old, it would have been I would have been old enough to recognize to an extent that some of these comments were just not acceptable, especially when she gets to England and the staff at this kind of manner where she's living or talking about her staff in India in a way that just was so derogatory. Yeah, I'm glad that we addressed that because I think if I were to give this as a a gift to like a child in my life, if I were to give them a simplified version of it, I think I would want to ensure that it didn't have those particular undertones in the same way. And I would want to make sure that I explained to them that this was kind of the lens through which you've got to view the story. But yeah, definitely a rough start unfortunately yeah there's the the macro colonialism frame and then as you mentioned Genevieve when Mary gets to this fancy manor in England she meets Martha who is going to be her new maid essentially but Martha is either her age or just a few years older and in that first conversation that they have there's some really derogatory comments made on both parts yeah martha has never met a person of color before which she says in a much different way and when she explains to mary that she actually expected hearing that somebody was coming to live with them from india that she would be a person of color mary is like offended like it's the worst thing somebody somebody could say to her is that maybe she wasn't white and there are a couple of other comments kind of sprinkled throughout the book of that nature. There's just the sense of othering. Like, and I think this shows up in the movie. I remember it more in the movie of A Little Princess where there are these like scenes of A Little Princess that incorporate the characters who are from India that have this like gauzy feel and like super cheesy music. And it, the whole like culture feels like very fetishized and othered. Right. And I do think that that comes into play in the adaptation of... The Secret Garden, and it is very 1993. It's what you would think might happen in 1993. At the time, I thought nothing of it, but yeah, it comes up in in moments throughout the book where like different characters, especially the kids, are like just so fascinated by Mary's history in India, and not necessarily in a way that feels like fully earnest, but in a way that feels somewhat judgmental. So we, of course, want to like lay that groundwork and make sure that listeners know that we understand it and that we are certainly not on board with any of those things. And that makes it sort of hard to judge this as a so-called classic. Do you think that's all fair to say, Genevieve? I think that is all very fair to say. I also think the character of Colin kind of has a lot, um, obviously not in terms of kind of colonialism and and issues there with, with any racial undertones, but just with the way that kind of you've got this 
unwell character who's introduced in the story. Um, and I feel like unwell is the best way to describe him because it's not clear what, for those who, who haven't read it, like you kind of meet him and it seems like he's quite ill, but you're not sure what with, and it kind of seems like everyone around him is projecting this onto him in a way. Yeah. And I feel like that's another aspect of it that was quite unnerving to read about in the ways that he suddenly gets strong and better and wants to surprise everyone with his health and well-being. It, it was just this, it was a very like mind over matter way of looking at health, which in some ways I can appreciate is the, is probably a helpful allegory for children, but also feels a little dangerous. Uh, I'm so glad we're getting right into this because I was fascinated by this as well. So a couple of things about Colin. First of all, I think I can get on board with all of the coverage and essays and reflections out there about how important it was that Colin was like the first disability rep, according to many. Like okay. many kids had never really read about a young character who was disabled or differently abled in any form. And as you said, Genevieve, like it's kind of unclear exactly what's quote wrong with him, but he is clearly unwell. And he is so unwell, in fact, that the entire manor is like hiding him because his father is so ashamed of his condition. And there's a lot happening under the surface there that clearly you and I are like not qualified to unpack. But there's so much going on with him. And I think like my first thought was Munchausen's by proxy. I don't know how familiar you are with that diagnosis. Yeah. And many listeners, if you're anything like me, first heard about that on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills with respect to Yolanda Hadid and her Lyme disease. I have, of course, since then learned some real facts about Munchausen's. But essentially, it seems like everybody around Colin is sort of telling him that he's ill and unwell and that he's bound to be unable to walk. He refuses to get up out of bed because he's so afraid to find out that he might have lumps in his spine that would then lead him to being, as he says, a hunchback like his father. I don't think that's a phrase that I'm comfortable using. So we will let's just like leave that there. But there's not actually anything physically quote, wrong with him as Mary figures out eventually, but he's so afraid that he's going to be unwell that he just like lays down in bed all the time and buys into everything that everybody tells him. And I really am anxious to get into what you mentioned, Genevieve, about this whole like mind over matter conversation, because I think it it makes me think of a lot of more contemporary discussions we have about things like toxic positivity and like Right. Just all of that stuff on social media about how, like, if you can think yourself well, then you'll be fine. Exactly. Big picture, I think the other interesting thing about Colin is that there's almost this weird, like, toxic masculinity thing that goes on. At least I felt that way. Because as soon as he starts to think that he might be able to overcome these ailments, he immediately is like, oh, well, I'm going to be an athlete. Like, I'm going to be physically strong. Maybe toxic masculinity isn't the right phrase. Maybe it's more just like these very heteronormative ideas of what a little boy should be that he immediately is like, oh, I'm going to show my dad that I can be his son by being an athlete. Right. He was just like very quick to make that connection. And I'm not suggesting that there's anything inherently wrong with that, but I did think was interesting and very telling of like what is expected of a 10 year old boy, both in 1911 and even now. Yeah. I think he also kind of like becomes a little cult leader-esque in yes. some ways. Yes. Lecturing other children and lecturing the gardener and talking about magic and, and power and all of mm -hmm. this. And it's, again, I can, I can see why there are 
aspects of this that I think would be helpful to children in a way, if you're thinking, you know, not in terms of toxic positivity, but if you, if you dedicate yourself to doing X, you can do it right. kind of like that idea, I don't think is necessarily always bad, but yeah, it's, it, he was just, and I, again, I had no recollection of like him as the character full stop from my childhood. I remembered Dickon and I remembered Dickon being like this rosy cheeked boy in a garden who was able to charm all of the animals. And he's kind of the like counterpoint to Colin in so many ways, but I, I hadn't remembered Colin as a character and I was just very taken aback by some of the descriptions and, and just the ways that he spoke and the ways that he spoke to Mary, the ways that he spoke to the staff, the ways that he spoke about himself. No, it was, it was wild. I can see the toxic masculinity for sure. Yeah, it was interesting. Let's talk a little bit about Mary first, because then I want to get into the boys and the adventures that these three go on together. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we find Mary on the first page of the book, living in India. From the beginning she is an unwanted unloved really lonely child which is just really sad and she basically wakes up one day to find out that everybody in her life has died of cholera i read a couple of blog posts from people who reread this book during the pandemic and were talking about how eerie it was to read this book in the time of covid because it was the first time they'd really like understood just what it would be like to live in a world where everyone was getting sick. Right. So that was just heartbreaking to read. In the movie, um, instead of a cholera outbreak, the thing that changes Mary's life is an earthquake. So like she wakes up and her whole home has been destroyed by an earthquake. And that's why she's sent to live with her uncle in England. But in the book, it's a cholera outbreak and literally her whole family is dead. Her parents, her nurse, everybody that works for her family and ultimately, she is taken to England to live with this uncle who is very mysterious and reclusive, and nobody really knows much about him. Mary is a difficult child, and I don't have any problem saying that because we hear about it again and again throughout the story. She seems to some degree to be aware of it. Everybody is very open with her about the fact that she is difficult, she's bratty, she's unhappy, she's incapable of doing anything for herself, as Martha realizes because Mary is like waiting for Martha to help her get ready. And Martha's like, no, like I'm not putting your clothes on for you. You're going to have to figure out how to do that for yourself. And I, I was reflecting on this whole idea of unlikable protagonists in literature because we talk about that a lot, I think, with adult fiction. And it doesn't come up as much in kid lit because I feel like there's this taboo around making a kid feel unlikable or even nuanced so often I feel like in books and even other pop culture for young people it's like you either have this super rosy-cheeked well-behaved precocious child who is the protagonist or maybe you have you know like the total opposite the rowdy like misbehaved kid and Mary is much more complex than that but I think a lot of people might argue that she is at her core, like an unlikable protagonist. And I'm wondering if you had any thoughts about that. I actually hadn't thought about that. And I think it's such an interesting point because you're right. Like we, there's so much more nuance, I feel like, in whether or not a character is likable in adult fiction than there is in children's fiction, at least in the children's fiction that I remember. And it's interesting because I, at the start, I don't think anyone, you, you pity Mary and you feel bad for her, but you don't particularly like her. You're not necessarily like rooting for her. And that's an interesting way to start a work of children's literature, I feel, because especially as a child, like you want to make that connection to the character right away. And I kind of like that 
in some ways, at least, Mary grows and develops and transforms kind of in tandem with her surroundings and in large part because of the people that are around her. I like that I like that Martha and Dickon and their family like kind of help her become a better version of herself. But I also like that she remains this kind of contrarian type of character, like Mary Mary quite contrary literally is, is what they kind of mock her as at the start of the book. And I like that she maintains that throughout because I think it it does. It show that shows that there's nuance there. And if you had experienced what she'd experienced and you know, been orphaned at such a young age and then moved to a completely different country and been thrown into this house where you have no, you have no one to play with or learn with or do anything with. Like you would obviously develop very differently than the average child. And so I like that that is captured in the story. Fun fact, the original title of the manuscript was Mary Mary Quite Contrary. No way. Yeah. Apparently, like, of all of the author's books, this is the one that has, like, the the least sort of treasure trove of history and information. But somebody did find the original manuscript, and it was titled, it was entitled Mary Mary Quite Contrary, which I thought was a fun fact. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I mean, she's a complicated character. I think that, like, so much of her history unfolds the more we get to know her in England because she has landed in this place where there are so many rules. She's not really allowed to leave her room. It reminded me a little bit of Flowers in the Attic in that like they have this, I don't know if Mrs. Medlock is like the housekeeper or she, there's just like a staff and Mrs. Medlock is, seems to be in charge and she tells Mary that she can't leave this one area of the house. And there are hundreds of rooms in this house and Mary just wants to explore She's not getting education. She doesn't have friends. She doesn't have activities, which is really upsetting. And then we find out that like she didn't really have any of those things before either. Like she had a nurse who took care of her and made sure that all of her needs were met. But even before the cholera outbreak, her parents weren't interested in parenting her. And so she doesn't necessarily even have like the resources internally to like come up with things to do for herself. Like she really is helpless. And she eventually, after spending enough time in England, is able to like get some new interests. Like she finds some some sense of purpose. She decides to start going outside more, which is really good for her health. And Martha and her mom get her a jump rope so that she can start exercising and like getting healthier. And then she ultimately starts exploring the interior of the house as well. So she's like starting to, as you said, like get stronger in all of these different ways, which ultimately mirrors the garden growing and Colin growing. But it's Mary's growth that really kickstarts all of these other transformations in the book. Yeah, completely. I like that. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the fact that she's also going going back to Colin a little bit. I think I'm just so fascinated with who he was as a character. I can't know that. Yeah, we got to get to him. I know. But I like that she's kind of the first and only person to challenge him and she's not afraid to do that. Yeah. So she hears this crying in the house and she insists that somebody's crying in the house and Martha keeps telling her like, no, it's just the wind. It's just the wind. But Mary being Mary and being quite contrary and finally getting like a little bit of chutzpah, she (laughs) decides to go look for the crying. And she discovers a boy who was her age and his name is Colin. And he explains all of these things about his life and his condition, things that we kind of already talked about at the beginning of this conversation. 
And it does seem as though she is the first person who has ever told it to him straight. Like he has never met anybody who exists to do anything other than give him exactly what he wants. Like he explicitly says, everybody in this manner works for me. My dad travels all the time. Everybody's afraid of him. Like he knows the power that he has even as a 10 year old who stays in bed all day over everybody around him. And I didn't quite understand this part, but there was some like undercurrent of like who would inherit the manor. And because everybody thinks he's going to die, it feels like everybody like wants him to die because I think the idea is if he does, then the people who work there will inherit it at some point. But I'm not sure if I'm getting that exactly right. I think that's true. I think it was the doctor who was right, okay. next in line if Colin died. Okay. So it was in the doctor's best interest to ensure that Colin like stayed in bed and kind of poorly. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I I I was rereading my notes this morning and I was like, there's something here and I can't quite put my finger on it. But yes, I think you explained it much better than I did. But Mary comes in and is like, hello, I am also 10. I also have been through some stuff. Sorry that life is hard, but I am looking at your back and there are no lumps in your spine. Like, you're fine. Let's get up and get moving. And she encourages him to at least change his mindset, which gets into, I think, this like mind over matter thing that, of course, will permeate the rest of our conversation. And at this point, Mary has already discovered the secret garden, which was a garden built by her uncle in honor of and as a gift to his late wife, Colin's mother. It was like a very romantic place for them. They grew roses. And then when she died during childbirth, he was so upset that he closed it, locked it up forever. And so it has been locked for 10 years, which is a parallel to Mary and Colin's age. They're also 10. But Mary becomes fascinated with this idea of the garden when Martha tells her about it. And she is able to get this guidance from a robin who helps her figure out like where the key is, how to get into the garden. So there are these like kind of supernatural elements. She's gotten into the garden. And so when she meets Colin, she's like hinting at the fact that she knows about this magical place, but she isn't quite ready to tell him yet that she's actually been in there and that she started working on it with the help of Dickon. And I think she was like, she's like kind of trying to gauge if she can trust him because Dickon is already trustworthy. I want to take a moment for Dickon because there's so much to get to with Colin and even with the relationship between Colin and Dickon and Colin and Dickon and Mary. What did you think about Dickon? He's this like magical boy. I almost felt like it was like a little much for me. Like, yeah, I think Mary was crushing on him, which was sweet, but it almost felt like a little too saccharine relative to the rest of the book. Yeah, I can see that. I love the character of Dickon because I feel like he's this relief in this pool of quite unlikable characters because even like I liked Martha but she put a sour taste in my mouth at the offset when she was making kind of racially charged comments when Mary first arrived and Dickon is just kind of completely good and completely wholesome and serves as this really nice foil I think to some of the other characters who are less wholesome and good but I see what you're saying. I think he's so, I mean, he's supernatural like you, like like the Robin. Like he has this kind of little, I don't know, following of animals who just. Literally. <laughs> literally, literally, like he's got a fox and he's got a crow and they just kind of follow him around and hang out with him. And yeah, I feel like there's almost an element of, there's a word for this in literature and I can't remember what it is, but kind of like the magical third 
party who comes in and kind of solves all of the problems. Oh my gosh, I can't remember what it's called. But I feel like he has that kind of, he, he just solves everything, basically. He and his mother kind of solve everything in the story. Yeah. Yeah, which is a little bit too perfect in some ways. But in other ways, I was like, oh, thank goodness someone's doing it. Even in the 90 second trailer for the 1993 movie, when they introduce Dickon, it's literally with this like burst of light behind him. And then yeah. there's these animals following him around. There's a baby lamb that like rolls over onto its back next to Dickon. Yes, yeah, he like bewitches the baby lamb. I guess baby lamb is redundant, but you all know what I'm saying. Like the baby <laughs> lamb rolls over and is like, Dickon, I'm your friend. And it's very sweet. It's very almost like Snow White in nature. Yeah. Like all of these creatures just flock to him. But humans also flock to him like everybody trusts him immediately mary trusts him sort of even without meeting him because she's heard martha talk about him martha and dickon are siblings and so yeah dickon has this interesting power that i do think ends up rubbing off on both mary and colin because once colin and mary establish the friendship she decides that she is going to get colin out of the house and he really like fights for the right and for the opportunity to go outside because in their drive in their quest to keep him inside and kind of unhealthy all of the adults around him are telling him that he should stay inside to be safe but they decide they're going to get his wheelchair and they're going to get him outside and they will get him into the secret garden and he's fascinated by life like I think we really see the difference between Dickon and Colin in a reflection where Mary is thinking about how like Dickon is always thinking and talking about life where Colin is always thinking and talking about death. And that's death, where yeah. we really see like the foil happening between the two of them. Yeah, completely. And I think, I don't know. I think it's interesting too, because you've got going back to kind of toxic masculinity and toxic positivity. I feel like Colin and Dickon almost represent those two things. So, so fully, because as soon as, as Colin is kind of out and about and finding his, physical and and metaphorical strength he becomes a little bit of the ringleader and dickon who's this soft magical perfect being becomes the follower in this relationship in a way which i don't love but no it is it's very interesting i feel like i pictured him every time he came up in the story i kind of pictured dickon in this like gauzy lighting and you know with with the light coming like pouring from behind him like you said in the trailer and colin you picture in this dark room and for so much of the story. And they're literally just like dark and light. Yeah, there's just so much contrast between them. I do think it's sort of interesting that like, I would say in the first quarter of the book, it's like all Mary all the time. Yeah. Mary is very much the center. Yeah. And then in the second quarter, maybe in like the middle third of the book, it's a lot of Mary and Dickon with Colin coming in toward the end. Mary is basically absent from the final third or quarter of the book. Like she disappears in favor of Colin. Colin becomes the star of the show. And for good reason, like interesting things are happening. They've been out in the garden. He's restoring his strength. He's learning so much about himself. And he's now on this mission to reunite with his father as this new version of himself. But I had a moment at the end where I was like, where the hell is Mary? Like I sort of got, I went on this journey with her at the beginning where like, you know, she was this nuanced character. It wasn't easy to like her right away. I was so excited to see that she was learning from this experience of being in London. She had decided that she actually liked people. Like at one point she tells Ben, who is the gardener, like, 
I think I like you. And that makes five people. I never thought that I would like five people. And this kid is 10. Like to be that jaded and cynical that you didn't even think you would ever learn to love five people. And then you get there. How, how could you not feel like you're on a journey with her? And then she really like falls off the page toward the end. And that bummed me out. No, I agree. And I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it until you just said that, but you're right. She kind of vanishes and it becomes the story about Colin and is it, is Archibald his dad's name? Yeah. Archibald Craven, which is like such a 1911. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Sounds Uh so, so good. And so evil at the same time. Yeah, exactly. But it really starts to focus on the two of them Mm -hmm. more so than any other character. Which is also interesting because I I understand the parallels between the secret garden literally growing and all of these characters growing and developing in tandem with it, especially Colin. I feel like the secret garden almost becomes secondary to Colin's discovery of magic and kind of preaching and his mission to reunite with his father and then his father's feelings. And it just becomes very wrapped up in that dynamic rather than in Mary's discovery of this kind of forgotten place, which was such a heavy focus in the first half of the book. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of just descriptions of nature in the first half of the book, almost Mm -hmm. too many for me. Like, I don't love that kind of writing, but it was beautiful. Like, even I could step back and say, like, craft-wise, this is gorgeous writing. And just to watch this young girl learn to appreciate the beauty of flowers and trees. And I also liked when Colin was able to make the connection between the garden and his parents' relationship and his mother because he never knew his mom. Yeah. And so it was really special to me when he had these revelations about like, oh, this was a place that meant something to my mother. And like this symbolizes a relationship that I never got to see. And then, as you said, the the garden itself kind of disappears. And it's interesting because my memory of the story, again, from the movie is that Mary is much more involved in the kind of like reunification part of the story. Like there's this, even even there's this like clip, this snippet in the trailer of Colin and his dad and Mary all holding hands and like frolicking through a field together. And the dad talking about how like, very explicitly saying to her, like, you made us a family, you brought us back together. So I think in the movie, they may have made it more so that like, the dad sort of adopts Mary and it's like a little bit warmer and fuzzier. We have no idea really what's going to happen to Mary at the end of the secret garden. No, no. Her story remains mystery. And it's kind of, it's hinted at that Mr. Craven is going to like take care of her and he gives her these gifts at different points and, you know, asks her if she wants to have like a governess, I think. And so it, It seems as though he's going to continue to take care of her, but at the same time, you don't really know where her story ends. Or, frankly, like, how even, like, Archibald, Mr. Craven's character, feels about the fact that she was the one who single-handedly kind of brought his son back out into the world and, like, revived this garden and kind of, you, you don't really get a sense of what, how he feels about her at the end of the story, which I feel was a little disappointing, yeah. If I'm not mistaken, he has like one moment toward the very end where he acknowledges that he had been a bad parent. Yes. But that goes away really quickly and there's no further yeah. reflection on it. So I agree with you. And yeah, Mary just kind of like fully blends into the background. Let's talk a little bit about the magic component because we've been hinting at it throughout this conversation. And I think it's a nice way to to bring us to 
a slow conclusion to this conversation about the secret garden, which I have enjoyed so much. So they have Colin out in the garden. He is really encouraged by Dickon and Mary to stand up. They're like, we think that you could probably get up out of your chair. And he is doubtful at first, but he decides that he's going to give it a try. And once he sees that he can do it, he decides that maybe he could actually take a few steps and walk. And while he's attempting to walk, we find out that Mary is standing there saying, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it over and over again under her breath. And that's like a very childlike thing to do. I was like, yes, like that's something that all kids would probably think to do is to like be a cheerleader for their friend when they're doing something difficult. But once Colin is actually able to to walk and to walk across the garden, there opens up this whole conversation about magic and what it means for there to be magic in the world and how Colin is actually accomplishing these new feats of strength that he didn't think would ever be possible for him. So Colin, even before he walked, he had talked about wanting to be a scientist. And now that he is realizing that he's healthier than he had ever been told he is, he really thinks that maybe someday he might be able to be a scientist and make these these discoveries. But he is now focused on making discoveries about magic. And I pulled out a couple of quotes from Colin about magic. One of them is, of course, there must be lots of magic in the world, but people don't know what it is like or how to make it. Perhaps the beginning is just to say nice things are going to happen until you make them happen. I'm going to try and experiment. Then he goes on, he says, the great scientific discoveries I'm going to make will be about magic. I'm sure there is magic in everything, only we have not sense enough to get hold of it and make it do things for us, like electricity and horses and steam. He says, the magic in this garden has made me stand up and know I am going to live to be a man. I'm going to make the scientific experiment of trying to get some and put it in myself and make it push and draw me and make me strong. I don't know how to do it, but I think that if you keep thinking about it and calling it, perhaps it will come. And finally, the last quote I have is, the magic works best when you work yourself. You can feel it in your bones and muscles. I am going to read books about bones and muscles, but I am going to write a book about magic. I am making it up now. I keep finding out things. So I feel like in those four quotes, we kind of get like the full picture of how Colin feels about magic and how he's defining it. What do you think about the role of magic in the book and of the way that Colin is talking about it? So I think it goes back to this I, I struggle with it a little bit because I love I love the idea of magic, especially in children's literature, even yeah. in like adult literature. I love magical realism. Like I think that's so fascinating and interesting and wonderful. But at the same time, I feel like this kind of magic and a couple of times he compares it to religion, which is also a little bit sticky depending on your perspective there. But I think the magic he talks about is just really this sense of like goodwill and positive energy. <laughs> and good vibes <laughs> and, and vibes yeah, yeah 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 it's a very vibes based approach to life very vibes based <laughs> which to to an extent in some settings and in some situations I love I think it's great like of course you want to bring that you want to bring positive energy to anything to yourself to other people to the room you walk into etc but I think this idea that like yes magic can cure me when I've been bedridden for my entire life is dangerous to a degree because that's just not how the world works. In Colin's case, it is obviously, but I don't know. I I struggle with it because on the one hand, I really love the idea. And on the other hand, I feel like it's it goes back to this toxic positivity kind of thing. What did you think? Well, it's interesting because as we have this conversation, I'm reminded again of A Little Princess, 
because in that episode, and I will link it in the show notes for those who want to check it out, I had the author Danya Kukafka as my guest on that one. And we kind of were joking that I believe the main character in that book's name is Sarah. And we were joking that Sarah was like the original manifesting babe. Yeah. Because she started as this kind of like poor little rich girl who then is shipped off to an orphanage and... I probably am not remembering all of this correctly, but essentially like she finds herself in a really bad situation, but because she is inherently good and because she has hope, like all of these magical things happen to her because she just like deserves them for being Mm -hmm. hopeful. And she has these dreams about like what it would be like to return to her normal standard of living and like get all of those beautiful things back. And it all happens like literal magic in A Little Princess. And now that we are talking about this more, I realize that there are a lot of parallels between Sarah and Colin because he also was raised with a certain amount of privilege, but then has some really hard times that he's dealing with. But he decides that like he can manifest anything, you know, like he doesn't use the word manifest, but the way we understand manifesting and like the manifesting babe culture in 2023, it's very much on the page in the secret garden. Yeah. And between the three of them, they're like, yes, like you can do anything you put your mind to. And I think there's a big difference between like, yes, you can do anything you put your mind to if you work hard. And I like the quote that I read where he said, like the magic works when you do. Yeah. Like if you work hard, then you sort of attract that magic. But then there's the flip side, which is like, you will get anything if you just think that you will get it and if you like think that you deserve it. And I think that's a lot of the criticism of like a lot of self-help culture in 2023 and a lot of manifestation culture and like all of those kind of gurus that are out on Instagram and TikTok especially. So I don't know. I think there is obviously like a really great message for kids about if you work hard and if you identify something that you didn't think you could have before but think you might be able to have now and you work hard toward it, like maybe you'll surprise yourself. That's great. But then of course there's this sense of like, they're just being magic. And while Colin of course has a lot of challenges, he is fundamentally like a privileged kid Mm -hmm. and he's lucky to have the support of Dickon and Mary. And once he finds this magic, it's like he forgets that they were there to help him entirely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know. It's complicated, but it is a happy ending. I mean, it was really satisfying to see that he is able to walk and that there is this beautiful scene at the end where his dad comes back and they reunite and his dad is so surprised to see him walking. It's hard not to like feel a little touched by that. But I was like, where's Mary? Like, let Mary be part of this. She's not even there. Yeah, she she brought it all together, but yeah. She did all the emotional labor here. Like She, she did all won. of the emotional labor. That's the best way to put it. All the emotional labor. She was the only one willing to fight with Colin. She was the only one willing to disrupt his normal routine and ruffle his feathers. She was the only one willing to actually like do the work to get him outside, even though he was afraid. And that was the thing that inspired him to walk. All these other people were ready to give up on him and to tell him that he was going to die. And then Colin kind of forgot about her. So that was kind of sad. Yeah. But um, I'm curious on the whole, Genevieve, I know we've talked about lots of different angles of the secret garden, lots of moments. How did coming back to the book as an adult and discussing it in depth with me compare to your memories of the book from when you were younger? I mean, I know we we discussed the fact that you're pretty sure a lot of it went over your head when you were little, but I guess <laughs> I'm just curious, like big picture, how you think it compares to that memory and also any expectations you had of it. Yeah. So I think big picture, I remember getting this really warm, fuzzy feeling when I read it as a child. And I think there were parts of it that gave me that warm, fuzzy feeling again. And there were descriptions that definitely made me 
that that were very charming and kind of made me happy and made me remember that moment and especially when it comes to kind of the descriptions of like the robin doing cute little things or like the the descriptions of the roses in the garden all of that stuff as a whole i think i would be very wary of like i said earlier like gifting this to another child in my life because i feel like there's a lot that's difficult and needs to be addressed and maybe that's a helpful thing and it inspires the right kinds of conversations and that's good but there were a lot of of aspects of it that I struggled with as well. Yeah, I think it's a great example of what we might call, and I put this in quotes, classics, because I think that term is very complicated. I think it's a great example of why these classics are very complicated. Yeah. Because it's hard to look at it. It's hard to look at even the rosy parts of it separate from the deeply hurtful, divisive, racist underpinnings. Right. And yes, we can acknowledge that like that was the reality in which the book was written and we can talk about why that was a problem and why maybe Frances Hodgson Burnett also thought that was a problem. It's hard to separate that from the story. And then of course, like this is just a complicated one because of all of the like interesting tensions between what's going on with the characters and like how they're relating to each other over the course of the novel. I generally enjoyed reading it. I thought it was like a faster read than I thought it might be. Um, When I was looking at it, I was like, this feels like it might be kind of dense, but I generally enjoyed it in terms of just like the reading experience, even though I knew that there were things about it that we would really have to address from a critical lens. Yeah, it's tricky. That's why it makes for a great episode of this podcast because Old books are tricky. Old content is tricky. And it's it's hard to look at it and to hold all of those things at one time. And I think we've done the best we can. I think so. I'm proud of us. I'm proud of us. Good job, yeah. us. Other than The Secret Garden, Genevieve, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend? Maybe like more wholeheartedly that might be like less tricky to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one book I'm sure everyone under the sun has heard of but it was one of my favorite books this year is Yellow Face by R.F. Kuang. It's brilliant. It's just like, it kind of skewers the publishing industry in the most interesting way. Like I said, I'm sure everyone has heard of it. So that's not a new recommendation. But another one I read a few weeks ago that I adored, it came out last year, I believe. It's called We All Want Impossible Things by Katherine Newman. And I absolutely loved that book. I thought it was brilliant. It had me like laughing and crying. It's about, this isn't a spoiler, it happens in kind of the first page, but two best friends who are a little bit older and um, one of them has cancer and is in hospice and the other one is kind of taking care of her in the last few weeks of her life. And it's about their dynamic and kind of the dynamics with people around them. And it's just, it sounds horrendously depressing, but it's not. It's so warm and, and so filled with humor and heart. So I would definitely recommend those two right now. Great. I will include links to both of those in the show notes for this episode. I had sort of held off on reading Yellow Face just because I feel like everybody was buzzing about it so much, but I am going to my local indie tomorrow because I'm meeting with the bookseller about something and also I have to buy some gifts. And if they have Yellow Face, I've decided that I'm going to buy it because I've now heard from a lot of people that it is worth the hype um, and I'm really interested in it. So thank you for just like giving me further permission to treat myself tomorrow. Anytime. That's what I'm here for. And speaking of book recommendations, Genevieve, I have been recommending your book, Adelaide. And I'm not just saying this because you and I are talking. Like, I don't always say this to guests. I have actively been recommending your book to so many people in my life. It is probably one of my favorite books of the year. I loved it. It is exactly my kind of book. I'm such a character reader. Like, I read for character more than anything else. 
And I think your book was such an amazing character study of like what it's like to be a young adult woman and like the way it illustrates relationships. I've said this to a few people, like I don't think I've ever read a book that so perfectly captures this very specific kind of toxic relationship that you can be in in your 20s and 30s but like it doesn't always feel toxic right and you're kind of in and out of it and it broke my heart but it also has this amazing female friendship like I just really adored your book and I am so glad that you wrote it I'd love for you to share a little bit more about it with our listeners well first off thank you so much that's such an honor but yeah so Adelaide It came out in April of this year, so April of 2023. And to your point, it focuses really on the main character's relationship, Adelaide's relationship with a guy named Rory, who just like cannot and will not love her back in the same way that she loves him, regardless of how much she pours into the relationship in kind of every sense of the word. And it's about that relationship falling apart and Adelaide kind of having to find herself and and pick up the pieces along the way and rediscover her sense of self and also reckon with the fact that there were probably some challenges outside of the relationship from a mental health standpoint that were contributing to to all of these dynamics at play. But yeah, it's, it's also just, it's a love letter to London. It's a love letter to female friendship. And it's basically my whole heart poured into a book. So I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. And thank you so much again. I felt that it felt like your whole heart in a book. So thank you for sharing that with us because I'm sure it was difficult at times, but listeners read it. I would check the trigger warnings before you get into it just to make sure that you're in the right place. But I wholeheartedly recommend Adelaide. And that makes me that much more grateful that I've had the chance to chat with you today, Genevieve. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. This has been so lovely. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>